0: Welcome to the Journal Daily's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and this week, what conversations have the murders of Sarah Everard, Sabina Nessa, and Gabby Petito sparked around the world? This week, we heard from the family of Sarah Everard, a devastated father, mother, and sister, who remembered a brilliant young woman taken from them brutally by Wayne Cousins, a former police officer, who will now spend the rest of his life in an English prison. His sentence and their victim impact statements come in the wake of weeks of conversations around brutal crimes against women, and the wider public's reactions to them. Sabina Nessa was walking through a London park on a Friday evening when she was attacked and killed. Her body was not found until the following day. In the days previous, what seemed like the entire world's focus was set to Wyoming, where 22-year-old Gabby Petito's body had been discovered after an extensive search. After she was reported missing, news of her disappearance saturated traditional and social media channels. That story in the US, and the stories of Sarah and Sabina in the UK, led to these conversations around how media coverages of disappearances and killings have a pattern. People, seeing how quickly and effectively the public could help with the Petito case, wondered why the same wasn't done for hundreds of missing women of colour in the same state that she went missing in in the UK, the phrase she was just walking home was everywhere in the aftermath of Sarah's disappearance. Was the same shock apparent for Sabina? This is a really difficult topic and we're really aware of that here at The Explainer and today we're not going to pretend to have all the answers but we did want to explore the complexities of the topic and explain why these discussion points are happening now and what the people who are leading these conversations want. To do all of that, I'm joined by our own producer Aoife Barry, who has been researching and writing on this topic extensively, and Brittany Shamas, a reporter with The Washington Post, who published an excellent piece on the 22nd of September, headlined, As the Petito case grips the nation, families of colour say their missing loved ones matter too. Thanks for joining us, both of you. And we're going to look at the UK context first and then move to the US. So to turn to you first Aoife, can you bring us up to date with what happened in court this week in the
1: Sarah Everett murder case? Sure. So this week, Wayne Cousins, who is a 48-year-old former Metropolitan Police officer who was a serving officer at the time of the crime and was employed in the Parliamentary and Diplomatic Protection Group, he was sentenced to a whole life order at the Old Bailey for the kidnapping and murder of Sarah Everard earlier this year. And the sentence that he got really speaks to the level of the crime committed. I mean, a whole life order means he'll never leave prison. And UK journalists have been pointing out as well, it's a very rare sentence. He's also the first police officer to get a whole life order as well, too. Just to bring people up to speed with the details of the crime, you know, Cousins had pleaded guilty to the murder, kidnap and rape of Sarah Everard. And the court heard heard a lot of very disturbing details this week, you know, about how in order to kidnap Sarah, who is a 33-year-old marketing executive, he stopped her while she was walking home and accused her of breaking the COVID-19 lockdown rules and he arrested her. That was described in court as a false arrest. But at the time, obviously, Sarah would have believed this was a real arrest. And Cousins worked on COVID patrols earlier this year, so he would have known the language, et cetera, to use. So all of those details were for the first time given in court this week. Um, we also heard that a passenger had witnessed the kidnapping, but had mistaken it for an arrest by an undercover officer because Sarah was walking home at the time from visiting a friend in Clapham, which is in South London. That was the third of March that that had kind of began. And her remains then were found a week later in a woodland stream in Ashford in Kent. So this week, is we saw the sentencing of Wayne Cousins for that crime
0: people in Ireland will remember the coverage around Sarah's disappearance and there are a lot of Irish people who moved to London who live around Clapham and will be very familiar with Clapham Common so that was definitely a part of the coverage hitting Ireland so much but there was also a lot of discussion on social media and I mentioned that phrase she was just walking home can you bring us back to that time and to the discussions that were happening particularly on Instagram Facebook and Twitter
1: Yeah, so when the first reports came out that a young woman was missing in London, it seemed to gain traction fairly quickly online, like in in Twitter in particular. There was, you know, posters and images of Sarah Everard going around saying that she was missing, that it was out of character. Um, And she was walking home in the evening on her own. So the details of this really, I think, captured people at the time because it wasn't very late at night. It was dark, but it was about 8.30 p.m. She'd rung her boyfriend, spoken to him for 15 minutes. She'd literally, I suppose, disappeared into thin air. And there were, you know, her friends who were young, social media savvy, you were sharing the posters, and so through that you kind of got uh, the traction. Initially, it was during the COVID lockdown in the UK as well, too. So I suppose news-wise, it was kind of maybe slightly easier for it to get into the news at one point. Um, and the police put out a CCTV image of her, so people had a very clear idea of what Sarah looked like, um, who was looking for her, and all the kind of the details that were around there. And then around that same week, so it was a week between her being reported missing and her body being found, and details were coming out in the press bit by bit bit about a suspect, about CCTV footage. And then when her body was found, women really began sharing their stories about feeling unsafe or intimidated, you know, while outside in public. So Sarah Everard's story was really taken and discussed by women online in particular and on the radio and on other media, you know, used as a means to discuss the wider issues around obviously her really awful case, but also how it sparked off ideas about violence against women in general and the fact that people often felt at risk and they were asking, well, if she was walking home on her own at night, which a lot of people do at 8.30pm, you know, that means all of us essentially could be at risk. And then a further element too was that there was a vigil organized to take place at Clapham Common on the 14th of March after Sarah's body was found. And that was supposed to be a very peaceful event. Several hundred people did turn up to it. But because it was during the COVID-19 lockdown there, people had been told it was supposed to be cancelled because it breached lockdown restrictions. A lot of people turned up and were there very peacefully. But towards the kind of end of the evening, there were very serious scenes. Police arrested people. There are photos shared online of women being led away in handcuffs being arrested and the police were heavily criticised for what happened there by by UK politicians so this was like a further ramping up of the discussion around well if we're having a vigil for violence against a particular woman and then this occurs you know what's the relationship between people on the streets between civilians and the police Um, and the Metropolitan Police did defend their actions at the time they said that that they were placed in that position because of the overriding need to protect people's safety it was really a flashpoint moment so two big moments there I think with the Sarah Everard case aside from the huge instances around what happened to her being kidnapped in, in that way and that phrase she was just walking
0: home brings us to the next case and the more recent one so it was just a few months after sarah's disappearance a young woman named Sabina anessa went missing in london and she was just walking to meet a friend through a london park how did that case and how did the coverage of the case differ to what we had seen in the sarah everard one
1: yeah, it's interesting Look to look at these two different cases. So Sabina Ness's case came to prominence at around the same time as the Gabby Petito case. And if you look at Google Trends, you'll see that people were discussing those three women around the same time, because again, it's part of that wider discussion around sexual violence against women. And, you know, in Sabina Ness's case, she was a young teacher, she was 28, and her body was found by a leisure centre in Kidbrook in London. And after she was identified, people began to ask questions about the level of coverage her case was getting versus the Sarah Everard case. Because of Sarah Everard case really did dominate the media for a long period of time you know you had that weekend of time in particular and um, before she was found and then, if, then kind of number of days or weeks afterwards and I had a look at, at the kind of tweets and the social media action around it and also how the two cases differed. So Sabine Nessa's body was found the day after she went missing. Um, she went missing on the 17th of September. And the BBC reported on the 19th of September that a body had been identified in the area. And then it wasn't until a number of days later that she was actually identified. So at the time, there was very local reports around the 18th or 19th of September saying a woman's body had been found in that area, but didn't really get to that national BBC traction until the 20th, 21st. So you can see there's a couple of days there where people weren't too sure what the story was. Then once Sabina Nessa was named and her photograph was put out there, then you saw the traction happening. You saw more people talking about, you know, this story, what happened to Sabina Nessa and asking the question, who gets covered in the media? And because she was obviously found in a very public place, people were questioning, you know, what happened there? She, it turned out, was just walking out to meet a friend, I think, in a pub slash cafe at the time. So it raised those questions again about women's safety in public areas. Um, There was a vigil held as well, and that went peacefully, and her family spoke at that. But I think if you compare the two, then the circumstances in terms of how they got into me- the media were slightly different because of it- when Sabina Nessa's body was found, there wasn't an, an, a kind of identity there and there hadn't been a missing persons campaign. Whereas in the Sarah Everard case, you did have a very kind of extended missing persons campaign, which ramped up over the week. Whereas the Sabina Nessa case really came to prominence once her picture and her face were out there. But even though they do differ, they still brought up the same questions around women's safety and then also whether or not there's disproportionate attention paid to certain cases, depending on the race of the woman who's been missing or murdered.
0: Yeah, that was one of the elements when she was named and identified and her picture was put out there and we learned more details about her. People did start to immediately question the disparity in the coverage and point out that Sabina, a woman of colour, was not necessarily given the same attention as Sarah Everett, a white woman.
1: Yeah, and I think if you look at the details of how the two cases got into the media, like I was describing there, in terms of one case came into the media because the person was reported missing, and then that gained a lot of traction on social media. The other case, it gained traction after um, Sabina Nessa was named. But social media played a huge role in her story getting out there because people were using Twitter and TikTok and other places as areas to talk about this greater discussion, to name her. They were using the hashtag say her name because I think people people felt that they wanted to be in an Anessa to be paid tribute to for people to see what happened to her to, for people to realise that she had been a victim and that she had been at risk and it also ties in I think with other high profile cases that had happened in the UK so say if you go to the Nicole Smallman and Biba Henry case as well they were two sisters who were killed in 2020 their bodies were found in a park by their friends and relations because their own mother uh, criticised the police for how long it took to actually kind of get behind the case um, so that was a really high profile one. There's two um, serving officers are being investigated for taking photographs at the the crime scene. Um, Then you have another case as well of a young boy um, who went missing and his name was uh, Richard Okorageye and he was just 19. He went missing and his mother also criticised the meth police for the way his disappearance was handled. That's also being investigated too. And both of those were those three people were all people of colour. Their their families are left there asking the Metropolitan Police what happened, why were there delays in investigating our cases? Both of the mothers in these cases compared it to the Sarah Everard case where the kind of missing persons case kicked in very quickly and the Metropolitan Police did obviously a huge amount of work there. You know, Richard O'Courguet's mother, Evidence Joel, was really critical and really felt that because of his race, things just weren't taken seriously there. On the legal side of the Sabina Nessa case, can you bring us up to date with what's happening? Yeah, Koki Selimaj, who is a guard worker, appeared via video link at the Old Bailey um, during the week after being arrested and charged over the death of Sabina Nessa. And he's a 36 year old uh, man and he's accused of using a weapon to attack Sabina Nessa before carrying away her unconscious body. And then on the wider picture, Aoife, you've given us a really good rundown on the anecdotal stories,
0: the ones where families feel like they are capable of coming forward and willing to come forward. But do we have any statistics around the racial breakdown of missing persons cases in the UK
1: or any hard data on this that could help us further understand what's happening? Yes, so there's data that shows that between 2019 and 2020 in England and Wales, this is according to the National Crime Agency, black people accounted for 14% of missing person cases while making up 3% of the general population. And then during the same period, white people accounted for 61% of missing person publicity appeals, while 22% were for missing black people. So you can see this really stark disparities there between who is reported missing and then who is getting the publicity for that as well too. And God, those numbers really are telling and and as you said, stark for sure. And then
0: on the other strand that you've been talking about in the last few minutes, Aoife, is the safety of women and how women feel when they're on the streets, particularly in the dark. Have the Metropolitan Police said or done anything in the wake of these cases to
1: ease women's fears or to allow them to feel safer on the streets? After Sarah Everard's body was found, the police at the time did introduce a new scheme that involved female officers, kind of being on the ground in local areas and being there for people to talk to. Um, recently they've really moved to reassure people that London as a city is safe. Um, they've gotten criticism from people for saying that because people are saying, well, you know, the city might be safe, then why are people still getting murdered here? They did comment after Wayne Cousins was sentenced. You know, they said the Metropolitan Police said it's sickened, angered, and devastated by his crimes that they betray everything we stand for. We recognises actions, raise many concerns and they're expected to comment further on that. Um, And if you look at London, the London mayor, Sadiq Khan, he's called uh, violence against women and girls an epidemic and he's calling for misogyny to be a hate crime. So there are prominent figures in London that are, you know, I suppose, calling out the uh, misogyny and the violence against women that, that's happening. Interesting enough, if we go back to what we're talking about it slightly there earlier, um, in terms of the disparity of coverage around missing persons cases, the Metropolitan Police did comment to the BBC on this before, and they said, in the age of social media, where people are used to seeing news and updates in real time, the absence of proactive appeals has sometimes been misinterpreted as a lack of police activity, particularly when one case is compared to another unrelated case. In reality, this is more likely to be a reflection of the fact that each case is different and requires its own approach. Even in cases without significant publicity, the public can be reassured that work will be going on behind the scenes. So they are moving there to try and reassure people. But at the same time, the statistics that I mentioned there stand as they are too. And there are those very valid questions about who is getting uh, the publicity for how long and why. And social media is playing such a massive role in getting the kind of cases out there that might not normally be getting the same level of publicity. And that hashtag, say her name as well, plays a big role in all of that.
0: Yeah, and to put my editor's hat on for a second, Aoife, we've had discussions in the newsroom when we might hear from a family about someone who's going missing before we hear an official appeal from the Guardian. We have to figure out what is the best path forward there. There is a tension of what is the exact right time to make a public appeal, the guardian are often best placed to do that. Sometimes the media, sometimes the family are best placed to do it. So that kind of comes into where the overall media coverage comes from as well. And and I do understand that there is difficulty there.
1: Yeah. And just to add to that as well, um, over 98,000 adults are reported missing to the police in the UK every year. About 75% of those people are found or returned within 24 hours. But there is obviously other cases there remaining and I think that speaks to then the level of pressure in terms of who gets media coverage of those missing people so there are many different factors at play but that also then begs the question of are there unconscious biases or other factors in terms of the media or otherwise selecting who does get chosen to feature and whose missing persons case is deemed important enough to not be featured in the media so it's interesting to look at those numbers and then compare it to the questions that we're asking about who gets the coverage or not.
0: Thanks for those stats, Aoife, because they do underline my point there that there is tensions and there is difficulties. And these are all part of like newsroom conversations that we have to have a lot. And there's never one answer that fits all. There's never one right way of doing things. And just in general, this is a really difficult conversation to have. And it takes a lot of uh, reflection and and awareness on the part of newsrooms and and people in the media to be able to do it. And I'm sure police forces are, are in the same boat as well across the world. Brittany, just to turn to you, and there's probably very few people listening who have not heard about the Gabby Petito case, but just in case there are a handful who haven't heard what happened, can you recap what we know happened to Gabby?
2: Sure. So Gabby Petito was a 22-year-old American woman who went on a cross-country road trip with her fiancé in a converted van, and the two of them were using social media to really document their travels, the different national parks they were visiting, and Her fiance ended up coming home back to Florida where they lived together in the van and without Gabby and he refused to say what had happened to her um, to answer the questions of her family or the police. Um, Her family reported her missing. There was a huge amount of attention to the case and um, days later her body was found.
0: Can you talk us through the type of coverage her case got and when it really ramped up to the point that we here in Ireland were getting minute by minute updates, just as people would have been in the state that it was actually happening?
2: Yes. So minute by minute updates is a good way of putting it. Um, this was a story that just kind of exploded across the media and had really round the clock coverage, both in Newspapers and especially on cable TV, you know, you were seeing updates um, daily or several times a day about every development in the case. Um, you know, the what we were hearing about in terms of the fiance's whereabouts, um, any kinds of clues along the way, and it just kind of ramped up until the point that the body was found. But even since then, it's continued um, because her fiance remains missing. So there's still been a lot of coverage around you know, those developments, even though there hasn't been a whole lot of news since the discovery of her body.
0: Yeah. So they're looking for the fiance as a person of interest. Is that correct?
2: That's right. Yeah. They've named him a person of interest in her case. And he was back home at his parents' house in Florida, at some point went missing from their home and the FBI is involved, um, asking for help trying to locate him, but you know as I said there hasn't been a whole lot of news in terms of where he might be.
0: As this case became the subject of such intense interest and scrutiny, can you give us a flavor of the tone and sentiment of the discussions that were happening, including the article you wrote, which I guess focused a lot on this idea, this term, the missing white woman syndrome? Yeah, so I think, you know,
2: pretty quickly just given the amount of coverage that was happening around this case and you know the fact that it was kind of nonstop multiple stories on home pages on, you know, very prominently placed across the media, you started having people say, "Well, wait a minute, what about all these other missing person cases, um, and referring to the term "missing white woman syndrome," which um, was a term that was coined years ago by um, by an American news anchor, and just kind of refers to this idea that when a story really kind of captures the nation, and um, and a missing person has you know kind of everybody's eyes on it, that that person is often. A young, white, and attractive um, woman. And so there were a lot of conversations happening. You know, pretty soon they're just noting that disparity and pointing out that unfortunately it's the case that people go missing uh, every day, and a disproportionate number of those who go missing are people of color. And yet, when you see a case blow up in the way that this one did, often the victim is somebody who looks like Gabby Petito.
0: Does that give credence to the idea that there's kind of a, in quotation marks, perfect victim when it comes to media coverage in the US?
2: Yeah. So, and I don't know if any of these things are you know, necessarily intentional, but we had spoken to um, a criminal justice professor at the University of Louisiana who talked about, yes, this idea of the perfect victim, the kind of victim that really captures um people's attention and it's it's often somebody who is young who is white who is female and also seemingly innocent so somebody that people have this idea you know is is um is like an innocent person undeserving of of what has happened to them
0: what does this tell us about race in the US, that it's always the white woman who receives more attention? And I'm aware that it's not just uh, race, but you know sometimes it's other things that marginalize people like their weight or their income, um, whether they're middle class or working class. Um, but when it comes down to it, is race the actual main element of what decides um, how much coverage somebody will get in these circumstances? it's a tough question
2: because i think like absolutely that that a case involving a missing white woman definitely does get more attention and i think that we can look back and see so many cases where this has happened um names that just exploded across public consciousness in the same way that this one has over the years you know natalie holloway is one that comes to mind elizabeth smart i think the names the really prominent names of missing People over the years that have attracted this kind of coverage. They have often been white women. And in the Petito case, there were a number of elements here that, that did draw attention, including the fact that she had a very, you know, vocal presence on social media. She had been posting pictures of her travels. And so people felt like there was kind of like an online trail of breadcrumbs that they could follow. But it's true at the same time that. There are so many other cases that just have not drawn this kind of interest. And so, and so why is that? And I don't think you can ignore race um, as a factor here.
0: One of the other things that jumped out for me in your article was the reference to how quickly the FBI got involved in the Petito case. Does that differ from the norm, or can you tell us how the system usually works? I think part of the reason that the FBI Got involved in this case is
2: because it um, seemed to have partly played out in national parks. So I think maybe that explains part of it. But I also think it's true that when you talk to to these families of missing people of color, they just don't seem to be getting the same amount of resources um, from law enforcement either in in trying to find their loved ones. And, um, you know, in this Petito case, it just it it was just an explosion, both in terms of attention and in the amount of resources being paid. And and yes, we don't we don't seem to see that to the same degree with some of these other um, cases where the person who's missing is a person of color.
0: Similar to what I asked Efa earlier, we have these stories from families who were willing or able to come forward and talk to reporters like you. But do we have any stats about how many women of color and Indigenous women have gone missing in the U.S.? Yeah,
2: so one interesting statistic um, that I think we mentioned in our story was that in between 2011 and 2020 in Wyoming, which is the same state where Petito went missing, there were at least 710 indigenous people who were reported missing. And we also know from other statistics that people of color make up a disproportionate number of missing person cases um, and account for about 40% of them. I think there's about 600,000 missing person cases reported each year in the US.
0: And the families who spoke to you, what did they put the disparity of coverage down to? So I think, you know, these families, the ones that we spoke to
2: really were really hurt in seeing, you know, this difference and just kind of left to ask themselves, well, why is this? Um, And one of the families that we spoke to said, maybe what it comes down to is that my sister doesn't have blonde hair and blue eyes. Um, And another father that we spoke to whose son has been missing, he said, you know, it just doesn't seem like there's the same level of care shown for us, like that we don't matter as much. And so I think they are asking the same questions um and kind of feeling you know that that maybe there really is something to this missing white women's syndrome that maybe the problem is that their loved ones um
0: don't fit this profile that is so often highlighted as i said it's an uncomfortable conversation for most journalists but now with the work that you have done in recent weeks have you looked back or have you been looking at coverage in a different light after these conversations and after doing your research
2: yeah i think so and yeah it is a it is a Difficult conversation to have, you know, as a member of the media. But we have been talking about this too, and you know, what? How can we do better? And what other cases can we highlight? You know, and can we do a better job um, covering these cases uh, fairly? I think it's an important conversation to have, and something that definitely this case has really brought to the forefront.
0: Can we change it without changing the
2: makeup of newsrooms? I think that's a really key piece, and that's something that—that's an effort that I think a lot of U.S. newsrooms have really been trying to make, especially um, in the last year. You know, with all the conversations about racial justice, and I think, yeah, I think that that is definitely an important factor in um, in trying to do better.
0: Are there other things as well? What other key pieces do you think can happen to ensure that this changes and it's not going to be the next horrific case that happens and we have this conversation again and then things revert to normal?
2: Well, I think one interesting thing that we learned through reporting this piece is that the same patterns that exist in um, the media in terms of you know the the perfect victim, the kind of victim that kind of rises to to the surface in the media. Those same trends happen in social media as well. The Gabby Petito case in particular was something that was really exploding across social media, I think, you know, even before it became a huge story in the media. And so I think, you know, we need to look beyond maybe just social media in what stories we should cover um, and try to Um, Look beyond that, like look at other places for these stories, look at local news and make sure that, you know, we're not just focusing on this typical case that, you know, that that has captured um, so much attention over the years, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, because one of the ways that the Gabby Petito case did capture people's attention was through social media sites like TikTok, which is obviously something very new to a lot of us. Has that now got a greater role in publicizing missing persons cases in the U.S.? So that's been really interesting to watch
2: unfold. And I think that um, this case is the first time that we've seen TikTok playing such a prominent role in a missing persons case. Um, and I just think, you know, because Gabby Petito had such a large profile on social media, you saw people kind of like amateur sleuth people pouring over every little. Details she put online. You even saw people like analyzing her Spotify playlist and trying to draw conclusions from that. Um, so I think this is the first time we've seen the platform really used in that way um, so commonly, I guess. Um, but one thing that we've also seen since this case is that people are now turning those efforts toward other cases and especially those involving missing people of color. So It'll be interesting to see what role TikTok plays in the future, but at this point, it's um, it's continuing to be a place where these stories are highlighted.
0: There was kind of a mini, not backlash, but I guess talk back to the initial voicing of concerns about the missing white woman syndrome. People saying that we can advocate for women of color while still giving attention to a murder victim like Gabby and still feeling sympathy for her family how balanced can these two things be that you don't fall foul of the missing white woman syndrome, but you're still able to cover a case like Gabby's? Is that possible? Is that balance possible within our newsrooms now?
2: Yeah, well, and I think what you raised was a good point is that, um, you know, in in speaking with families, um, they're not saying that they want, you know, that that the Gabby Petito case doesn't matter, that they don't care about that. They're glad that she's getting attention. They just want to see um, their stories get attention as well. Um, and yeah, you know, I think, I think you can do that. I think you can, um, you can do both. You can highlight, um, this case that has had an enormous amount of interest, but I think you can also, um, make a conscious effort to highlight, um, other cases as well. And especially those involving missing people of color, because they do make up a disproportionate, um, amount of missing person cases.
0: Yeah. And I was struck by something that Gabby Petito's father said at a press conference this week. So in front of a room full of journalists and reporters, he said, it's on all of you, everyone in this room to do that. And if you don't do that for other people who are missing, that's a shame because it's not just Gabby that deserves that. And I think that's sentiment that, Brittany, you would have found talking to the families in your reports saying like, you know, we don't want to take this away from Gabby or we don't want people to not have sympathy or not try and help find Gabby. But also, please try and find our women and our loved ones and, and bring justice for them as well. Thank you both Eva and Brittany for coming into us today and, you know, getting into a, a difficult and um, tricky area for, for journalists, for everybody across the world. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to The Explainer and a big thank you to Brittany and Eva for joining us. This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by producers, Nikki Ryan and Eva Barry, who obviously did a fantastic double job this week. If you want to support The Explainer, there's a few things you can do. Head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to become a monthly subscriber. You can also leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's a really great way to make sure other people discover it, listen and love it as well. Thank you and catch you next time.